Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 30th, 2012. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. This morning, A Vision for You welcomes Harlan. Harlan is a recovered compulsive overeater, originally from Chicago, who currently resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. He is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous who is dedicated to teaching the program of recovery as outlined in the big book and intensively working with other compulsive overeaters. Here to share on answering the question of why is Harlan. Good morning to you, Harlan. Here. Um, Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very happy to be here. Um, should I just get started, or exactly? Hello? I'm turning it over to you. Yes. Okay. All right. Welcome Hi. to you, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, it's my pleasure to serve. Um, I'm Harlan. I'm a compulsive reader, and as Leah just told you, I'm originally born and raised in Chicago. I currently reside in Scottsdale, Arizona. And yesterday, it was my honor to celebrate my 14th year of abstinence. Uh, December 29th uh, was my, is my abstinence date, and it's my OA birthday. I came into the program in 1979, and um, I earned my seat. And I, I'm not going to talk a lot about me, but I just want to kind of give you uh, an idea of, of who you're listening to so that you know that I've earned my seat. Uh, I was definitely not a person who came on to this disease later in life, as you'll hear in a lot of meetings. I was definitely a person that was afflicted with this from the first minute of my life. And food and, and, and this illness ransacked me from the time that I was a little kid. I remember uh, probably my first memories, my first thoughts of life were how my mother and father were screaming and yelling at one another. And when there was food served, uh, it was kind of all quiet on the Western Front. And as we're going to get into later, is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? Absolutely not. I am a compulsive overeater, as I found out much later in life, because of different factors than anything that was happening with my parents or not happening with my parents. But I was a fat kid. Uh, I was the one kid uh, on Albany Street uh, along Devon Avenue on the north side of Chicago that couldn't button his Little League uniform. Um, Food and weight have been an issue in my life forever. And I came into this world uh, born to two other compulsive overeaters. Is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? No, we're going to find out why in a little bit here. But what we're going to look at later on are reasons, causes, and conditions. And we're going to pop open the hood on some things that have haunted me for a very long time. And I bet in that way I'm just not alone in that little world of people that think that food and weight are the problem and that food and weight are the issue. And we can disprove that in just in, in a second. Um, but I was a fat kid. I tried everything to lose weight. Some of my earliest memories were people screaming and yelling at my mother and father about how fat I was and why were they allowing me to get so fat? Why were they allowing me to eat cake? Why were they allowing me to eat whatever? And uh, I remember when I was about five or six years old, they started screaming directly at me and they scared the living crap out of me. 
they really did. They, they would get in my face and they would lecture me or they would try to reason with me and they would try to, to appeal to me to lose weight and to stop eating so much. And they said things to me like, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. And they said things to me like, you know, girls don't like fat boys, which I found out. And they said things to me like, if you ever want to get a good job, you can't be this fat, and so on and so forth. And if there was anything I could have done to acquiesce to their demands, if there was anything I could have done that was of this earth to be the person that they wanted me to be, I would have done it. There was no stone left unturned in my little mind and in my little body that I didn't try to employ to become the thin person that they wanted me to be. And they believed at some very deep level that I was eating out of some laziness or some sort of malady of the brain or some form of stupidity that I didn't realize that I was fat and I didn't realize that thin was better than fat. And what I came to understand later, which we're going to examine, is I thought I ate because I liked food, and I'm going to disprove that, and we can disprove that just looking at the doctor's opinion of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was really eating for the effect that food was doing for me, because what I didn't realize when I was five years old, six years old, is that food was doing something for me that it wasn't doing for them, and it was creating a sense of ease and comfort that came at once by eating the food. They saw what the food was doing to me, and they wondered why I ate it. I felt what the food was doing for me and wondered how they stopped. And when I was about eight years old, nine years old, I went to a doctor, excuse me, I went to a doctor. And this doctor gave me diet pills. And when I was eight years old, I was taking 1,500 milligrams of amphetamine a day. They were three big pink pills that I would take that would kill my appetite. And I remember when I was eight, nine years old, I could feel the temples of my head going ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And you sleep about, oh, 10 minutes a month. And you just, you, 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 you don't eat. But when the, when the pill would wear off, of course, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. Now, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm getting in fist fights at school. I can't hear what people are saying to me. If you've ever watched a Charlie Brown cartoon and you listen to the adults, it's wah, 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 that's exactly what was going on in my head. People would say things to me and I wouldn't understand one thing they were saying. My grades in school plummeted. I was irritable. I, I was just, just miserable, but I wasn't eating. And I remember when I was about nine years old, about a year later, they came out with some of the information about some of these amphetamines, and what they did was they switched me from one pill to another pill. Instead of a pink pill, it was a blue pill. Same exact effect, no different, but I lost weight. And I've tried a lot of different things to lose weight. And I've, I've done uh, lose weight with AIDS, if, if any of you are old enough to remember those um, sort of 
quasi chocolate candies. They weren't really chocolate, but they were candies. They lose weight with AIDS. I, I did tops. I was an international tops king in the teenage group. I was a Weight Watchers king a little bit later in my life. And I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school, and that was just torture, pure torture. And as I went through puberty and, and my mother started getting more and more ill, my mother had mental illness. Uh, she was essentially lost to me when I was about four years old. My mother could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute. My mother could be a two-year-old baby the next minute. And then my mother could be the most normal, well-read, well-versed individual the next minute. And you never knew quite what you were getting. My dad was 54 years old on the day that I was born. My father was the sole survivor of murder and mayhem in Europe the likes of which the world should never see again. And he definitely had a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, and he definitely had survivor's guilt. He definitely felt not like, oh, you know, why did they kill my parents? Why did they kill my brothers and sisters? Why did they kill my nieces and nephews all under the age of five? He pounded on the table, and he would look up at God and say, why didn't you kill me too? And the one thing he said to me over and over again was, the reason that I survived is so you could be born in the United States. He just, he, he just felt that that was the reason that he survived. And he was very, very frightened of the world that he was born into. And he would tell me every single day when they came to kill me, I got away. One day they'll come to kill you. If they don't kill you, they'll kill your children. And when different things would happen, he would be running around, they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us, things like that. And I'm growing up in this. And the reason that that's important to my story is not for any other reason than a little later on when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, and one of the things we are going to look at into the whys and we're going to pop the hood on is why we need God and why we need to work the steps and how God and the steps fit into this equation. But I'm going to be asked later on in my life to have a firm belief in a God that I do believe in and I'm growing up in all this tumult. I'm growing up in all this, this um, disbelief of God and anger at God from my dad. And my mother had a belief in God, but my dad definitely was angry and he had a few questions, which I'm sure he asked when he got up there. But um, I was going through puberty and I was going through all these various things and I never went to the dance. I never went to homecoming. I never went on the date. I went on my first date I was like 35 years old when I went on my first date with a girl. And so food and weight became the bane of my existence. I couldn't look like the other kids. I would often want to dress like them and look like them. And you know, you hear a lot of things about the 1960s. And I, I was born in 54, but I grew up in the 60s, obviously. And you hear about how we all wanted to march to the tune of our own drummer. Nothing could be further from the truth for me. I wanted to look like the other kids. I wanted to be like the other kids. Excuse me. I couldn't be because I felt different. I felt as though I was looking at the world through a fence. And they wanted me to come in, but I just I couldn't get around the fence. I couldn't reach out to be like them, and I couldn't feel like them. I don't know why, 
but there was just something inside of me that did not understand how they were blessed with a thin body and I was cursed with a fat body. And there was something else too and that ransacked my life that no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't lose weight for very long. And it says in the doctor's opinion, we lose confidence in ourselves. Of course we, I lose confidence in myself. Everything I tried failed. And I remember very, very distinctly, my life was just really getting away from me further and further in those times. And um, as a teenager, when my friends were getting ready to go to campus colleges and universities that were away from home, I knew that that was not going to be my fate because my mom was getting sick. My grades were not that good anyway, but my, I, I didn't fit in my skin in the school. I didn't fit in my clothes at the school, and I didn't fit in the desk at the school, and I was physically, mentally, emotionally, I was so uncomfortable at that time with who I was, and I just couldn't seem to function at a level that I needed to function at to be on a par with the other kids. And this illness just tackled me from behind unmercifully. And I remember very distinctly my life was just getting away from me. And when I was 22 years old, um, I was about 500 pounds. My mother was about 300 pounds. My dad was about 270, something like that. We were about 1,100 pounds between three adults. When I was 22, my mother died. And when I was 24, my father died. And this was during the 1970s. So my mom has gone 35 years, I think that is, 36 years, 36 years now. And I remember in the 70s, life was just spinning, spinning down, down. My food habit, not my hooker habit, not my heroin habit, not my cocaine habit. My food habit in the 1970s was about 100 to $150 a day. I was writing bad checks to anyone dumb enough to take them. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I was filthy dirty. The apartment I lived in was filthy dirty. My life was a squalor. My life was a lie. My life was fear. My life was watching for the landlord to come for the rent that I had not paid when he would be screaming and yelling at me and I would try to get out whatever door he wasn't coming in. I remember getting my car repossessed twice. I remember many things about that, but my most vivid memories, and I won't go into extreme detail on this, and listen, you don't have to be over 500 pounds to know this, and I was, I was to be much more than that. You don't have to be that heavy to know that this disease physically will administer such a measure of pain that it would stun an ox. You don't have to be 500 pounds, but here are some of the things that I experienced. I experienced a filth to my life, to my skin. I experienced contact dermatitis, the likes of which are unbelievable. It's when your skin rubs together. My stomach would come down to almost my knees. I couldn't wear clothes. I couldn't look good. I couldn't lay in a bed and flat. I couldn't sleep in a bed and breathe. I had to sleep in a chair, which 
accentuated the edema in my lower extremities to the point where I could not wear socks. I couldn't wear them because they would dig in because of the edema. Edema is that extreme swelling. My, the skin on my legs was shiny. There was no hair left on there because the hair had all popped off because of the swelling. I couldn't go to the bathroom and wipe myself without a, a wall to lean against. I couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't fit in the seat. Years and years ago, there were places where if you went in there to shop, you had to pass through a turnstile. I couldn't do that. I could barely walk. I broke car interiors. I got stuck in cars. I broke furniture. I fell out of many chairs. I broke couches. I broke furniture. I once went to the dentist and broke his chair, and he screamed and yelled at me never to come back. And these are some of, but not all of, the indignities that I felt as the result of this illness. And as this illness bore down on me more and more and more, and the pain became more and more intense, the one thing I knew to do, the only thing I knew to do, was to eat to cover the pain. And the more I ate, the worse the pain got. And the more I, the, wor the worse the pain got, excuse me, the more I ate, and it was just endless. It was just endless. And I didn't see a way out, and I became suicidal. I didn't know how to live. I didn't want to live. I didn't have a way of life. I didn't have any life. And as my friends were getting married and we were in our early mid-20s, as they were getting married and starting careers and graduating college and starting businesses, I was eating. And I didn't know. I couldn't see my way through. Forest through the trees, I couldn't see my way through. And in 1979... Two wonderful friends came through the pizza boxes and the filth of my apartment, and they dragged me to an OA meeting at the Orchard Mental Health Center in February of 1979 in Skokie, Illinois. God likes to laugh, too. The Orchard Mental Health Center. And I went to those meetings because they pressured me. I didn't want to go. I ate my way to the meetings. I prayed for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I ate my way home, but I went. And I started hearing things in those meetings that changed my life a little bit. Not enough so that I stayed, because I've already told you I came in in 79, and I have 14 years of abstinence, and 79 is longer than 14 years ago. There were times I came in, and there were times I stopped doing the work. But to kind of speed this up, I've been hospitalized. I've been everything in this illness. But one of the things in 1979 that I heard was I heard something that I had never heard before, and it was at Swedish Covenant Hospital on a Thursday night. Early on in my OA career, I went to a speaker meeting on Thursday night at Swedish Covenant Hospital. And... There was a woman there that was a Roman Catholic housewife, and I was a fat Jewish boy. She was married, and I had never been on a date. She had two kids, and I was a virgin. She drove a Cadillac. I drove an old car. She lived in a house. I lived in an apartment. What did I have in common with her? Nothing. Nothing. But when she spoke that night on that Thursday at Swedish Covenant, 
She talked about the way she thought about food, and she talked about the way she acted around food that I believed were secret unto me. I did not believe that any other human being thought these thoughts or did these things. And it opened up, it opened up a gate in that fence. And I started to be able to see that maybe I wasn't alone. And that speaker was Della F. of Chicago. And Della spoke that night and said things that made me understand for the first time in my life that maybe I was not alone. Maybe there was hope for me yet. Maybe there were other people that not only had this, but maybe I could recover too. But I wasn't to stay. I came in in 79. By 1981, 82, I was going to meetings, but I was dieting with group support. I was not having a spiritual awakening as a result of any steps. I was on a diet. I was controlling my food through sheer unaided willpower. I was going to meetings. And that's what I see a lot in OA. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. And if you've, ever, if you've ever been to one of my big book studies or you've listened to some of this stuff on the Los Angeles website, I talk about that quite a bit, that this is not about dieting with group support. This is about having a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. I was to leave. I was to be hospitalized. I was to have cellulitis and staph infection where antibiotics were rendered completely useless. I, I entered the hospital, uh, I, I went into a hospital in 1983 at 513 pounds with a fever that was through the ceiling. My fever was about 102, 103. They said if it gets to be about 108, you're going to die. I almost had my leg amputated because the cellulitis and staph infection were so rampant that no, nothing could contain them. And miraculously, I'm walking on legs today that are mine, and I can walk several miles, and I can do the things that people do. But before that happened, other things had to happen. And one of the things that had to happen is I had to graduate OA. And if you're wondering what I mean when I say graduate, I had to come to that conclusion that most people come to that says, oh, I can do this on my own. I can do this myself. I can do this because I now know the program. Some of you who are listening on this phone have probably done that. And statistically speaking, some of you that are on this phone may do it again in the future. I hope not. I hope not. But I had to come to some information that was extremely important in the middle 80s. And then even then, I stopped doing it. And now I have 14 years. But one of the things I had to come to, one of the things I had to understand was that I was going to have to follow directions in this book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what it says here in the foreword to the first edition is, the main, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And on page 45, the thesis line of the big book is extremely consistent with that because on page 45 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. And I thought maybe my problem is food and weight. And some of you may think that too, and it's not. 
If food and weight were the problem, then diets would work for me. Then treatment centers, which I've never been to, would work for people. Jails would work for people. Losing weight would change their life forever, and it doesn't. Hospitals would turn out recovered people, and they don't. And on page 58, I like to call it step zero. It's not officially step zero, but I love to call it step zero because it just makes it so plain to me. It says if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And my sponsor said to me, what is it we have that you want? And I said, well, these people are not eating. And he said, that's the wrong answer. It's an incomplete answer. And I said, well, what is the answer? And he said, they're not eating and they are not eating happily. You see, that's what a spiritual awakening can do because there was some information in here that I didn't understand and now we're going to get to the whys. Why am I a compulsive overeater? What is a compulsive overeater? Am I a compulsive overeater because I'm Jewish and Jewish people celebrate with food? No. Am I a compulsive overeater because my mother and father were morbidly obese? No. I am a compulsive overeater because of a mental twist as described in the doctor's opinion that I was born with and I will die with. And the mental twist is a brain that I have that will think about food incessantly and constantly and irresistibly because not it's not looking to make me fatter. My mental twist does not say, eat the raisinets, eat the Oreos, it'll make you fatter, you'll fart even more. The girls love it when you crap in your pants and piss in your pants. They love that. Eat more Oreos, you'll get more girls, I promise you. My brain doesn't say that. What my brain locks in on is the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating the raisinets or the Oreos that effect that the doctor's opinion describes so beautifully, the effect, that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating the food. For about eight seconds, I can give the world the one-finger salute. For about eight seconds, that food will do something for me that it does not do for the normal eater. It will give me a sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating the food. Now, there's an unfortunate thing there, too, because once I eat Oreo cookies or I eat Raisinets or I eat whatever, I will tripwire the physical allergy. And the allergy is a very misunderstood concept. The allergy means an adverse, abnormal reaction to the food, beverage, or substance. And they used that word allergy, and they said, don't eat pizza, you, you've got an allergy. And I says, now wait a minute here. I'm, not, I'm eating pizza. I'm eating like four football fields of pizza per week. Now, I'm not itching. I'm not, I don't have watery eyes. I'm not breaking out in hives. And they said, no, you don't. It's a different kind of allergy. And they couldn't explain it to me. So I went to a source of information that has never failed me before or since 
I went to the dictionary. This was in the days before the internet. Trust me, they published dictionaries in those days. They still do. But they published dictionaries. And I went to the dictionary and I looked up the word allergy. And it says adverse abnormal reaction. Adverse, it's harmful. Abnormal, one out of 10 people has it. Nine out of 10 people do not. Now, if my reaction is adverse and abnormal, I am allergic. And what that allergy does in me is it sets me up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. In other words, in my body, not in my mind, in my body, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. And so what do I do if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the mental twist? I am at illness. I am at disease. And that means separated from the norm. No environmental situation can cause it and no environmental situation can cure it. It cannot be cured caused or controlled by anything that is of this earth. It cannot be cured, caused, or controlled by anything that is of this earth. My brain locks in on that sense of ease and comfort in a way that is completely abnormal, but in my mind, it says in the doctor's opinion, our alcoholic life seems the only one. It just seems natural and normal. And when I'm not eating, and this is a part that's important for me to remember, when I'm not eating, I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. Throw in scared to death, angry as hell. Remember when they said to me as a kid, don't eat so much, you'll feel better? Well, I did. When I'm not eating, I feel real better. I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel, I feel crushes on girls better, jealousy, guilt, shame, remorse. I feel all these things much better. And as those feelings burst to the surface inside my soul, like a Roman candle on the 4th of July, my brain will lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating the food. I will convince myself that it's okay this time to eat three or four Oreos. I never say I'm going to eat the whole bag. I never say I'm going to go from Oreos to Doritos, from Doritos to pizza, from pizza back to ice cream. I never say that. What I say is that old threadbare idea that this time I'm just going to eat two or three. Because I also have a mental blank spot that covers up the fact that every time I eat what I think is two or three, I eat them all. The only time I ever ate one cookie was when it was the last cookie that I could get my hands on. What am I going to do about this? I can't live like this for long. I'm being destroyed. What is the problem? Because it said on page 45 that the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. If food's not my problem and if weight is not my problem, what is my problem? My problem is selfishness, self-seeking, fear, anger, and dishonesty. The character defects described in the big book. Being late for work isn't a character defect. Yelling at the dog isn't a character defect. Being rude to people isn't a character defect. 
those are behaviors which, are, which I'm driven to by character defects. Here is the why. We talked about the why I am a compulsive overeater. Why food does something for me that it doesn't do for the normal eater. Here is the why I must work the steps and I cannot be on a diet in OA and stay on it for long. Here is the why diets don't work and here is the why of why I need God in a nutshell. Now there is absolutely nothing that I am going to be able to do in this lifetime about the physical allergy. I was born with it and I'll die with it. And if I ate M&Ms with peanuts today, I would eat them all. Just like I did 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Wouldn't change. The physical allergy is, is activated every time I eat effect-producing foods. What's an effect-producing food? Now, going back to what we just talked about, if I eat tomatoes, unless they're on a Whopper, if I eat lettuce, it does not trigger that physical allergy. If I eat certain foods, fishes or meats or whatever, chicken or whatever, it's not going to produce that effect. It's not going to give me that, that zooming of the physical allergy so that I'm out of control. But there are certain foods that do. And when I eat those foods, it will produce in me an actual physical craving for more of the same. But there is one thing on page 23 that's extremely important where it says the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than in the body. There's my emancipation proclamation because the mind is what we're going to look at when we do the steps and we need a God that we do believe in. Now, if you're listening to this and you're anything like me and you've studied Bill's story and the way he struggles with God and if you've looked at it and, and not got the point, let's look at all these things again. God didn't give me what I wanted. He didn't give me a Playboy bunny. He didn't give me young parents. I wanted Robin Laura Petrie. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Very different. I wanted a house. I had an apartment. I wanted whatever. I didn't get it. So I got mad at God. Some of you that are listening got mad at God too because you didn't get what you wanted. You didn't get what you felt you deserved and it must be God's fault. And we looked around as Bill did and we see the wars and the chicanery and the hypocrisies of different people. And so we became shut to this idea of a God. But the real thing that I had to look at was as Bill saw when he looked at Ebby here was a man who was sober. Was there any more power in him than there was in me at that moment? And that was none. I don't have to look for the splitting of the Red Sea. I don't have to look for the burning bush. I don't have to look at rainbows or, or whatever. I can look at people that are not eating and they are doing so miraculously. Now, Let's take a look at the whys. <clears throat> Excuse me. If food is not the problem and weight is not the problem and the allergy is not going to be changed by anything I'm going to do, what I'm going to have to do is to have a God that I do believe in and if there's any step that I see a lot of people struggling with, it's two, three, and four. Two is a very misunderstood step. 
And I tried to bring the God of my childhood. I tried to bring the God of my synagogue. I tried to bring a God that I did not believe in, that I did not trust, and that was very, very harsh with me into my program, and it failed. That God of my childhood wouldn't keep me out of the food for five seconds. So what I had to do was I had to draw up a God that I do believe in and a God that I want to turn my life, which is my actions, and my will, which is my thinking, over to through the working of the steps. And there are so many people running through OA today, and I've traveled this country doing big book studies, and I've talked to thousands of people. They don't even know what the working of the steps means. They think it's reading about the steps. It's not. And that's why I can't recover in the 12 and 12s, and I can't recover in the OA literature. I must follow the directions in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's where the directions are. I have a mental twist, and the mental twist says, eat the food, eat the food, eat the food. And I take that mental twist, and I start working the steps. And I bring God into the equation, and I marshal the power of God through the working of the steps. And in marshaling that power, when I am getting that signal that says, eat the ice cream, eat the ice cream, and I sit down and I do the step with a sponsor or do the step with somebody that understands the big book, I do many 10 steps throughout the day, many. And I look and I say, I have a fear. And it's, 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 as we're listening to this, it's December, the, it's December the 30th, and we're looking at I'm off work today, I'm off work tomorrow and Tuesday, Wednesday I have to go back to work. I have a fear involved in that. I have a fear of performance. I have a fear of how will, how will my products be received. I, I'm in sales. I've been in sales for a very, very long time. How will everything go this year because I don't know it's a clean slate. Will I do this? Will I make money? Will I hit my quotas? Will I hit my goals? I don't know. And as these fears start to permeate through me, I am blocked off from God by fear, and I work the step or I eat the ice cream, and those are my only choices. But as I bring that fear to God, let's just take step 10. It says on page 84, when, when these things crop up, not if, when, I discuss them with another person. I ask God to remove them. I discuss them with another person at once. I make amends quickly. Excuse me, and I resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. And through the working of the steps, if you're on, if you're not on step ten yet, and you're just getting started, and you're looking at the first couple of steps, I understand that. I have to keep moving through the steps, and as I do, the mental twist gets sated by the working of the steps. I no longer feel that fear. I no longer feel that anger. And here's the nugget. I no longer want the food. I don't have to exercise willpower if I exercise the steps and bring God, a power greater than myself, into the equation. And there are theologians and there are historians and there are 
clergymen, and there are authors, and there are many, many people that are going to philosophize today about what God is and what God is not. There are two things I need to know about God. There is one, and it's not me. And he is a power greater than myself. And as I work these steps, and as I have this book, and as I follow the directions in the book, mental twist will not drive me into the food. And I will not set the terrible cycle in motion. I resent you. If I resent, then you've got me power to kill me. Because as I resent, I am blocked off from God. As I fear, I am blocked off from God. If I get selfish, and that means you're not sticking to my script, self-seeking, I'm not getting the results I want, or dishonest, I'm lying, I'm trying to power drive my will into the equation, I am effectively blocked off from God. Once blocked off from God, I will eat again. I will pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. And I will repeat that cycle over and over and over again, the mind telling me it's okay and the body ensuring that it's not. But what if I could find a way to live where I don't want the food? What if I could find a way to live where I get all the benefit of what the food used to give me, that sense of ease and comfort that came at once by eating the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already have that sense of ease and comfort and I won't set the terrible cycle in motion? And that process is called recovery. Recovery. To return that which has been lost. I have been lost. I have been lost to my God because I wandered away. He didn't. I cannot have a God with skin, and I cannot have a God that's money, pictures of dead presidents, cannot be a God that works for me. I must marshal that power through the working of the steps. Step three, very misunderstood. I'm not turning anything over to God in step three. Step four, very misunderstood. One of the most important things I need to remember is the directions are in the book and it's simple and it's easy. There's not a person on this phone doesn't know who they're mad at. There's not a person on this phone doesn't know who or what they fear. Not a person on this phone doesn't know the sexual harms done others. It's very, very simple. If I have a sponsor that knows the big book, I will not have a problem with any of this. It's a very, very simple, easy to follow process and I can live free of the food as I've done for 14 years. Now, the miracle of OA, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close soon here, but the miracle of OA is not that I've lost over 500 pounds because I was up over 700 pounds. That's not the miracle of OA. The miracle of OA is not that for 14 years I haven't eaten raisinets or, or, or uh, Milky Ways or ice cream or fries. It, it, that's not the miracle of OA. The miracle of OA is that I have not wanted to eat those things. That's the miracle of OA. I don't want to eat those things. I, I don't have the time or the vehicle with which to go through this in detail, but if you have a sponsor that's not taking you through the doctor's opinion and Bill's story and the chapters in the book and the steps, 
find somebody else that does. If you can't find that in OA, look for it in AA. It says in the end of Dr. Bob's nightmare that we must look for the illness, or excuse me, we must look for the recovery with the same energy that we searched out the illness, that we searched out the, the, uh, the food. And it is very, very important. And I'm going to just close with, with a couple of things here. And this is on page XX. In the big book, it says of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way, 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program, but great number of these, about two or three, began to return as time passed. That means that they had a 75% recovery rate. Now, I have traveled this country in service to OA, and I have done big book studies in over half the states in this union. It has been my honor and privilege to have served OA. It is the greatest way of life in the world, and on page 77 of the big book of AA, and many, many times through the book, but on page 77 it says, my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. Other places it says helping others is the foundation stone of my recovery. In other places it says in order for faith to be vital, it must be accompanied by unselfish self-sacrificing for others. And it's my honor. But one of the things that I wanted to make a point of is this. We can't talk about 75% recovery in OA. Come on. We can't talk about 50% recovery in OA. We can't talk about... 5% recovery in OA. We are lucky if we're recovering at 1.5% to 2% in OA. And exactly the reason is we are getting away from the big book and we are getting distracted into dieting with group support. We have meetings today that if they did not read the preamble, you wouldn't know where you were. You wouldn't have any clue that you were in a meeting of OA, you would think you were God knows where. And this is specifically why our recovery rates are so low and there's 5, 6, 10, 20 people sitting in a meeting in the middle of the greatest health epidemic the world has ever seen. This obesity epidemic is the worst pandemic ever known to man. And we're sitting there and we're spazering around and we're not recovering because we're dieting with group support. I just want to close with some words of wisdom from Dr. Bob, the co-founder of AA. It says on page 181, if you think you are an atheist or an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any form of intellectual pride which keeps you from accepting what is in this book, I feel sorry for you. If you still think you are strong enough to beat the game alone, that is your affair. But if you really and truly want to quit drinking liquor for good and all and sincerely feel that you must have some help, we know that we have an answer for you. It never fails. If you go about it with one half the zeal you have been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink, your Heavenly Father will never let you down. Now, I... Hope I meet some of you. I, 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 you know, it's just a voice on the phone. Uh, I hope maybe some of you will come to the OA birthday in in January in uh, Los Angeles, California. I will be there. Um, but I hope that if there's anything that you can take away, it's what I needed to take away. 
I have to work the steps. Not read about them, not philosophize about them, but do the steps in the book. And if I do, I will never find it necessary to eat M&Ms again. And if I don't, I will eat them and die. And with that, I will pass. Thanks. Thank you, Harlan, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us on the line this morning. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Now we open the floor for any questions people may have. You can press star 1 to unmute and direct your question to Harlan. Good morning. This is Rita, compulsive reader and food addict. Hi, Rita. Um, I, hi. I just am uh, so emotionally uh, taken by your journey, uh, which I have been on my whole life. And I know that God uh, blessed me. Someone called me from Michigan to tell me about this meeting, and I'm listening to recovered, not recovering, recovered compulsive overeaters. And I'm only into this meeting for seven days, and I'm just uh, allowing God to help me to live one day at a time to uh Continue on my journey. Thank you. Thank you so much, and God bless you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Rita. Questions for Harlan this morning? Press star 1 to unmute. Good morning. This is Esther, compulsive overeater in Canada. Hi, Esther. Good morning. Thank you so much, Harlan. I think that uh, this talk should be required listening for any family members of compulsive overeaters so uh you know maybe they'll be doing a lot less of why can't you just stop eating and maybe they could have an understanding of why why we couldn't stop eating but you know from what you've you know taught us today it's clear that the you know the the 12 steps the journey of recovery it's a spiritual journey so nobody can do it for anybody else it's an inside job but getting back to when you had spoken about being a, a young a uh you know a child and a teenager who was overweight, you know, it's a spiritual journey. Usually we get to our rock bottom and then, you know, we begin hopefully um, to implement these steps and, you know, to do these steps and, and you know, move along um, recovery. But for someone who's young, a child or, or a teenager, you know, what what's – can you see that um, – I'm just wondering how this could be helpful for them um they're not uh, children are not mature and and there's not really much a, a parent or an outsider could do for a child who's you know has this problem because on the one hand it is a, a it's a spiritual problem but how is someone who's you know not mature or not an adult expected to to um to uh to embrace a a, a spiritual journey Esther, we have failed as a as a group, as an organization with children, and I think that it's very hard for a child to conceptualize uh, what's going on here. Uh, and, and in most cases, they just haven't suffered enough pain, as unfortunate as that is. But there are three things we can do for still suffering compulsive overeater. Recover, recover, and recover. And those are the only three things we can do. Work the steps, work the steps work the steps, recover, recover, recover. And that's about all you can do. They're on their They're going to hit their bottom. They're going to do what they're going to do. And it says in the big book, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. There's nothing you can do except recover, recover, and recover. 
This is Hanayeta Nash here. I'm sorry? Thank you, Esther. Go right ahead, Hanayeta. Thank you. You know, one of the things, first of all, I can relate to so much what you said. Um, And thank you so much for sharing so openly and so honestly with us. Um, I I have a a granddaughter who's 17 that is now up to about 275 pounds. And I haven't been really working my program very well when it comes to her. And just recently we came to a pass that, you know, I needed to stop saying anything, giving any looks, doing anything. And what I realized is that I didn't accept her exactly the way she is and love her exactly the way she is. So what I can do is recover, 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 and Mm -hmm. I have to add, and accept the person exactly the way they are and know they're in God's hands and that Mm -hmm. he has a path for them just like he had a path for me. Mm -hmm. She has a God and it's not you. You have a God and it's not her. Our job is to recover, work the steps, recover, recover, and recover. I agree. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, my name's Joan. I have Hi, a this question. Is Can I share? One moment, please. One moment. Questions for Harlan. And I have a question. Go ahead, Joan. Um, hi, my name's Joan. Thanks, Harlan, for the uh, uh, your story. It was amazing. And I'm about 10 years younger than you, but I grew up in Skokie, Illinois. Um, oh, okay. I wanted to ask you, what kind of a food plan do you follow? Do you follow a certain food plan, or what do you do? My food plan will not be helpful to you. Um, I could tell you my food plan. My suggestion is, then what? Um, you know, if, if you need a food plan, the one I'm on as a 58-year-old man probably wouldn't be very helpful to you. I would suggest a nutritionist rather than, than anything I could give you. I can help you with the steps, Joan, but when it comes to what you should be eating, I have no knowledge of it. None. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Joe. Hi, this is Debbie. Can I ask a question? Yes, sure, Debbie, Debbie. Go ahead. Hi, Marlon. Thank you so much for your amazing uh, qualification and share. I just wanted to know um, what does your conscious concept with Hashem look, with God look like on a daily basis? Like, how do you connect? I get up in the morning and I say thank you, God, for another day. Um, I pray in the morning. I pray incessantly throughout the day. I have an enormous amount of uh, 10-step work that I do with others, and I do a lot of 10-step work throughout the day. I I bring God into everything in my life. I bring him into every scenario. And this is, a, this is like exercising a muscle. And it, this does not happen from from just saying, from now on, I'm going to do this. This happens from work because my life is, oh, I'm pissed off at this person. I'm fearful of this and and stuffing it. If I'm going to stuff fear and I'm going to stuff anger and I'm going to not get my way and get mad and huffy, then I'm going to stuff M&Ms. This takes work. It's like, it's like training for an activity that you've never done before. If you've ever you know, learned to play a musical instrument or you've learned to run a marathon or something, all of a sudden you're exercising muscles that you've never exercised before. And as you do it and you do it and you do it, it becomes a second nature to pray. It becomes that second nature to develop that conscious contact. It took a long time and I still have to work at it every day. 
but you don't have to be told to brush your teeth anymore. There was a time in your life where your parents had to say, Debbie, go brush your teeth. And so you brush it. Now, probably nobody has to nag you to say, Debbie, go brush your teeth. Nobody has to say, Debbie, if you have to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, because these are second nature to you. What I can say to you is work at it, work at it, work at it. And when you feel yourself getting agitated, you feel yourself getting scared, you're just not getting your way, you're standing in line at the grocery store, and the person in front of you has a price check or something and you're just irritated by all this and you're just getting mad, remember this may be God saving you from a head-on collision because there's somebody on the highway right now driving the wrong way down the east lanes, they're going west or whatever it is. We don't know. We can't see past the end of our nose. And as I do this, it becomes more and more second nature. Do I ever get scared? Do I ever get angry? Yeah, no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I'm never going to rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, these things are going to happen. But God is bigger than these things, and I reach for him constantly. But it starts with wanting to. Thank you so much. No problem. Hi, Hi. this is Kathy. Hi, Marriott. Hi, Kathy. Uh, thanks, Harlan, so much. I really appreciated all that you shared. Um, I identified with something you said, which had to do with letting go of your uh, the God that you grew up with in synagogue and finding a, a new God that uh, fits for you. And Here we I go. What? I'm sorry. I Go ahead, Kathy. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, that process of finding a God of your understanding that works for you. Okay. I had to actually sit down, and I do them from time to time because life changes. And I had to do a job description of a God that I do believe in because I already knew I was an expert on the God I didn't believe in. I was an expert on the God that was mad at me, that was going to kick my butt. I knew all about the God that I did not believe in. And that God wasn't serving me. And on Appendix 2, on page 567, it says I have to be willing to believe in a God more, power, more powerful than me. And I have to actually sit down from time to time and formulate what that God is in my life and life changes. I was married for 17 and a half years. Now I'm divorced for two and a half, almost three years. Well, life changes. I have a teenager. She doesn't want to speak to me. Okay, fine. You know, I don't force myself on her. Life changes. My business went from up here to down there in the last five, six years, 10 years, whatever it is, my business has been in a downward spiral. Okay, now this year, you know, things are picking up a little bit, great. But it has to be a God that I do believe in. You know what you do believe in. You know a God that you do believe in. Write it down. Put it in your heart and understand that it's okay to change that from time to time. As long as it's a power greater than yourself that you do believe in. Don't put things down that you think other people will want you to put down. 
it's, it's your God. It's not God that I approve of. It's not the God that your church or your synagogue approves of. It's a God that you do believe in, that you want to turn your will and life over to. That's the key. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank Hello, you, this is Rachel. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hello, this is Rachel. I just wanted to say your story was and is amazing. And you mentioned that you have a web page. I don't have a web page. I'm on the speakers thing on the Los Angeles um, um Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous has a events speakers, and I'm on that. So how would we listen to you again? Go to, okay, go to Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous. Then go to events speakers. Under speakers, it'll it'll give subtitles. Go to events. Click on that, and then scroll down the page, and there I am. And, and can you spell your first name? Harlan. H-A-R-L-A-N. Harlan. Uh, you're really an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So are you. Thank you. Yes, you are. Hi, this is Marion. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, Harlan. Thank you so very much. God bless you. Can you repeat you. what you just said, the Los Angeles OA, how to get on your website, please? I don't have a website. I'm one of the speakers on the Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous website. So here's what you do. Go to Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous, and when that page comes up, at the top it will give you different choices, and it will say speakers. So don't click on it, but just put your thing there, and it will say events speakers. Click on that. Scroll down the page. There I am. Thank you, Marion. Other questions for Harlan? Would you leave your number, please? My number is 480-495-8961. Thank you. This is Jody in California. Hi, Jody. Hi. Are you available to do Big Book workshops? I am. I'm going to be in Los Angeles uh, in January at the OA birthday. I'm going to be doing the Big Book Workshop. I did two of them in San Diego this year, and I did, I'm going to be at the OA birthday in Los Angeles coming up in January. Uh-huh. I've never been to and Northern California to do one. Oh, I did one for the Sacramento Intergroup, many, uh, not many, but years ago. So if you might be available to come to Monterey, for example. Sure. Okay. Great. Thank sure. you. Thank you, Jody. Amazing story. Questions regarding the program of recovery. We have an opportunity with Harlan on the line this morning. Any questions regarding the program of recovery? Hi, this is Heather. Hi, Heather. Hi, Hi Harlan. I just want you to know I, I selfishly want to want you to stay here talking to us all day. (laughs) Um, I was wondering if you could go through maybe how you work your step step 10, and and maybe uh, that's where it gets a little tricky. Well, I'm still working the steps, but um, I have Mm -hmm. gone through them before, so I'm familiar with step 10, but it it was always challenging for me. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could just uh, give me an example of maybe how you might do that. 10, 11, and 12 are like a constant. 
10, 11, and 12, you know, 11 in the morning and at night, but 10 and 12 all day long. When anger comes up, when selfishness comes up, self-seeking, dishonesty, or fear, my tendency is to stuff it. My tendency is to justify it. My tendency is to take your inventory. All those things need to go out the window. And it says on page 84, it's very clear. These are very, very precise instructions. Page 84, it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, here's your instruction. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Now, I assume he has done so, right? We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anybody. That means I'm going to have to get on the phone. That means I'm going to have to get in contact with someone who knows the book because I can't discuss this with just Ish Kabibel next door. I have to discuss it with somebody that knows the book. Make amends quickly if we've harmed anybody. Then we resolutely, that means with purpose, turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And on the next page, I remind myself a million times, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. I have to get out of myself. I cannot stuff these things. I cannot ignore these things and remain abstinent. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I must get out of myself, and that's how I do it. And that's what I do when these things crop up. <clears throat> Thank you. Other questions? Hi. Uh, hi, this is Toby from New Jersey. Hi, I'd like to thank you. Um, I'm speechless. I, I am just listening and trying to take in as much as I can this morning. Um, can I ask you a question in regard sure. to the obsession of the mind and the physical allergy? Mm-hmm. Is it related in the body and is the solution different to both of them, or it's the same solution? What is the connection? Why is it that the mental defective person also happens to be born with a physical allergy? Is it the same thing that is causing both? Not all are. There are people that have the mental twist and do not have the physical allergy. These are the people that you know, these are the people in your life that when they're good and pissed off, or they are having a really bad day, they can eat three pieces of candy, they're done, problem solved, it's over. You know them, you've sat with them, they're starving to death, they're mad, they have a half a sandwich, they can't finish the other half. They do not have the physical allergy. The solution to the mental twist are the steps to quiet the mental twist, to quiet down the mind from, from the fear, the anger, the selfishness, the self-seeking, and the dishonesty. The physical allergy is sated by we don't eat the food. If you don't put the food in that is going to cause the allergy, if you're eating foods that are triggering your allergy, then you need to look at that. You need to get to a nutritionist. But as long as I'm not eating foods that are triggering my physical allergy and I'm just eating foods that will fuel my body, I won't trigger the physical allergy. I won't pass through the well-known stages of a spree. I won't emerge remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. So, Toby, if I am going to fight the food and diet, 
I'll die in the food. If I work the steps, I won't eat the food. Allergy won't be triggered. Mental, mental twist gets sated through the working of the steps. Problem solved. So in other words, it's two separate diseases that I'm afflicted with, a mental no, twist and an allergy of nope. the body? No, nope. you have two that. separate... That's okay. You have two separate issues in the same illness. What is a compulsive overeater? It's a person that has a strange mental twist and a physical allergy. The mental twist drives you into the food, the physical allergy makes it impossible for you to stop once you've started. We must work the steps. The steps, the steps address both diseases. No, this, no. The steps address the mental twist. If the food does not enter into the body, the allergy cannot get triggered. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. steps will quiet the mental twist temporarily. Is there a connection, a correlation between the mental twist and the physical? Or they are the two components of the illness. Okay. In two different areas. Okay. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Toby, for helping to clarify with Harlan's help. Thank you. Any other questions? Hello. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you balance selflessness and also um, self-care. And um, I, I'm a person that brings my food with me because I need to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and how do you balance your time, um, again, with self-care and selflessness? Self-care and what? And You're breaking up there something fierce. I, I think it's self-care. It self-care versus selflessness. How do you balance? Selflessness. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, I don't know. I take care of myself and I just establish credibility by going out there and saying, this is what I'm going to do. No, I cannot have one. No, I do not want any. I'm not quite sure what the question is. I hope I'm answering it. But if I have to eat before I go, if I have to bring my own food, if I have to make whatever arrangements, you know, if God forbid I had cancer, would somebody say don't go to your chemotherapy, don't go to your doctor today? If I had diabetes, would somebody say it's my kid's birthday, don't take your insulin today? No, of course not. I have to care for myself. I hope I'm answering the question. I don't know. But I have to make my recovery something uh, that is the top priority in my life. There's nothing that comes before my recovery. I hope I'm answering it. I don't know. Thank you, Harlan. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. This is Maggie. This is Susan. Maggie, go ahead, and then Susan. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. I have the same question that the previous person had about balancing self-care and selflessness. In other words, I feel very selfish because it seems like my self-care takes a lot of time and energy. So how... Mine does too. <laughs> yeah, so how... And, and yet you seem to be so giving and so selfless. 
I found the time to get the food. I found the time to get to McDonald's. I found the time to get the candy. I have more time than I've ever had, and I do an enormous amount of work for OA. I sponsor people. I take calls. I make calls. You know what? I found the time to get to the pizza. I found the time to hide the wrappers. I found the time to go write the bad checks. I found the time to get to the place that I knew would have the best pizza. This is half the effort with 10 million times the reward. And that's exactly my answer. If I can find the time to get to the food, if I can find the time to get to McDonald's, I can find the time to work with others and take care of myself. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. Susan, please. This is Beverly this from is Maryland. May I ask a question? Susan and then Beverly, please. Thank you. I think Susan's gone. I'm not sure. Okay. Susan, press star one to unmute if you're still interested. Yeah, my phone keeps muting itself. I don't know why. Thank you. We're just okay. trying to keep oh, the line are. clear. Go ahead. Okay, gotcha. Thank you so much. Harlan, what a treat. Thank you so much. Um, I have two questions, both related to step 10 and or 11. You know, okay. we learn that the steps are in order for a reason, and although I've done the steps years ago to no avail, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm back at step one, and, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, but I have enough knowledge, which they say avails us nothing, but I have enough knowledge that, to know how to work step 10 and or 11. And I mm -hmm. want to know your thoughts, and I do have a sponsor, but I haven't asked her this yet, so I'll, I'll just, since I'm talking to you, I'm asking you, but I do have a sponsor. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on working one step 11 to get in that habit by reading the pages in the big book related to that step and doing that work while we're working step one? I understand I can't work step six. I understand I can't work step four. But, but mm -hmm. to not cause more damage and to get in good habits, what are your thoughts on mm -hmm. 10 and or 11 simultaneously? Well, the first thing I need to do to recover is I need to surrender. And I have to stop the monkey shatter in my head of what I know and where I'm at. And I have, to, I have to just understand that if what I was doing and what I was thinking and what I knew were effective, I wouldn't be having this conversation with somebody. And I need to quiet down and I need to be open and I need to have a sponsor that understands the big book and it's going to take me through the book step by step, word by word. If I have a sponsor that is going to read to me out of the OA 12 and 12, if I have a sponsor that is going to distract me with other things, I need to find someone else. Yeah, and that's I need not the to case. Work. I have a big I got sponsor. you. Okay, good. 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 Excellent. Um, I don't think that it would hurt to do those things while I'm doing the first 10 steps, the first 9 steps. I don't think there's any problem with going through the inventory on page 84, 85, 86. I don't think there's any problem with that at all. 84 is step 10, excuse me. Uh, 85, the bottom, and all of 86 and 87. I don't think that there's a problem with that at all, as long as I'm continuing to work the first few steps, as long as I've plugged the jug, and I'm working on and developing that spirituality. I'm getting ready in 3 to turn things over. I'm turning things over in 4 through 12. Misunderstood step 3, we don't turn anything over in 3. We turn it over in 4 through 12. 
But as long as I'm on that process, there's no harm in reading and, and doing that, you know, step 11 stuff. No harm at all. Thanks so much. And one other quickie, which is, okay. what does meditation look like to you? They talk about meditation very briefly in the big book. Okay. And, and so I just want to ask you that. Okay, that's fine. Um, prayer is when I'm speaking to God, and meditation is when I'm listening. And meditation for me is just being quiet. I don't have to lay on the floor. I don't have to listen to the ocean sounds. I don't have to listen to birds chirping. I don't have to listen to that. What I need to listen to is my heart. God makes life so that it's, it's an easy thing. If you read step 11, it says, I will not struggle. I will relax and take it easy. When I want my way, I'm going upstream. I'm going to get obstacles that are going to pop up out of nowhere. Things are going to be ten times harder than they would have been if I would have just turned around and done it God's way. I have to shut up. And I have to be still. There's an expression in my other big book. It says, be still, for I am God. If I want something... I say to God, this is what I'm thinking. If he wants me to have it, he'll put her, it, in my life. When I start forcing my will into the world, I'm going to meet with tremendous exhaustion and resistance. God's will downstream. Does it feel right? Does it feel okay? And here's the bottom line to meditation for me. If I am having a meeting of the itty-bitty shitty committee in my head, and I am trying to convince myself that something is right or good or God's will, then the answer is no. If I'm quiet enough, Susan... Susan, if I can sit there and it just feels right, that's God's will. He'll make those things possible. Susan, if it feels right, it is right. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. I have to stop giving my God voice the finger. I have to start shutting up and listening. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you so much. No problem, Susan. Thank you, Susan. On to Beverly, please. Beverly, press star one to unmute. Can you hear me now, Leah? Indeed. No. I was going to ask a question, hi, Holland, about the agnostic um, on page um, 46. And one of the things was I was brought up in, in a um, Christian church, but one of the things that I have been struggling with is to come up with a God of my own perception, a God of my mm -hmm. own ideas because of the way that I was raised um, mm -hmm. and some of my current um, religious thoughts. So I was wondering if you could um, share on that or help me with that a little bit. Thank you. Okay. Beverly, it's, it, it, if the God of your childhood works for you and you do believe in that God, then that's fine. 
but I'm assuming that because we're having this conversation that there is a struggle. And what I have to understand is I can either live with a God I do believe in or die with a God that I don't believe in. Those are my choices. And if I'm going to have to subject myself to showing someone else what my God is and make sure they approve of it, I'm probably going to die in the food. So I'm faced with a decision. Am I willing to believe in a power greater than myself? Beverly, am I willing to believe in a power that will quiet the mental twist so that I don't set the terrible cycle in motion? Am I willing to recover? Am I willing to hang on to a God I do not believe in because someone else thinks so? That's an excuse. That's an excuse. That just says I'm not ready to give up the food yet. Beverly, you can either live with the God you do believe in or eat and die with a God that you don't believe in, and those are the choices. You're not going to turn your will, which is your thinking, your life, which is your action, over to the care and direction of a God you do not believe in. You just won't do it. So I hope that answers it. And you know what? If you think that they will not approve of your God, you don't have to share that with them. That's a personal thing between you and your higher power. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you, Beverly. Harlan, I just want to check in with you. We still have over 100 on the line, many with questions. Wait. Should I continue? Uh, let's, let's, how about we go to 8 o'clock? How's that? Terrific. Sounds good. This is okay. Lois. Can I ask a question? Lois, go right ahead. Good morning. Okay. Thank you for your service, Harley. Uh, Harlan. I'm sorry. I have a cat named Harley. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Harlan. But thank you so much for your service and your time and your experience. Uh, it's quite a blessing. Um, I have a question about sponsorship, okay? I mean, I'm, I, I have sponsees, and, and I'm, you know, very committed to doing the best I can with my sponsees with God's help and, and a vision for you. And, and I have a question about um, when, you, when you work with a sponsee, and, you, and I know how important, I know what the problem is, I know what the solution is, thank you, God. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And, mm-hmm. and I know the, uh, you know, the, the doctor's opinion and the preface, and, and I've read through these, but uh, do, I, do I read, do, do you spend, I want to ask you, would you, re- you spend time with, with the preface and the doctor's opinion and Bill's story and mm-hmm. so on up to mm-hmm. uh, the fourth step? Mm-hmm. Do you read every chapter with, with your sponsee and, and stop and, you know, share your experience and, and you, because I'm, you know, I was just thinking of my time commitment. I've done that, but then, you know, other people, my, my, some of my sponsees have done it many times. They've read it many times, but they haven't, you know, mm-hmm. practiced if it. If their reading it many times was adequate, they probably wouldn't have come uh, to that situation. So I do go through that with them. Okay. I so go you go through over every most word with them and take time yeah. and and actually yes. describe the the yes. importance and the depth of this. Yes. Okay. Yes. And yes. one other part of that question, um, I've had a sponsee or two that waited too long to do their fourth step. You know, we've gone mm-hmm. up to the the third, and then they've begun their fourth, and they've procrastinated and waited too long, and then mm-hmm. uh, they've picked up, and then they've taken some time and gotten abstinent again. Would you go mm-hmm. back to that 
again, the, I know you have to go back to the first step. but goes we, all the way back, and, and they have a step two problem. Uh, and, and the step yeah. two problem is they had a God they really didn't believe in. But for your purposes, I would really reread Chapter 7. And okay. Chapter 7 will answer this better than me. But here is, here is what you have on your hands. You have a step two problem. And whenever somebody is stopping or struggling, it really is never that step. It's usually one or two. It's it, or one and two. Yeah, but, right. Um, it's, it, the old adage is this. Uh, I have a daughter. She's 18 now. But let's just say she was 13. And I said to my daughter, go clean out your room, which is what we're doing in step four. And she said, you know, she would use some words, golf words that you wouldn't want to repeat it on the phone here. But if I said to my daughter, uh, my daughter's name is Hannah, Hannah, go into your room and take anything and everything out of there that you no longer want. If you want it replaced, updated, if you want a brand new one, put the stuff in the dumpster. There wouldn't be anything in that room but walls. That's the deal God is making you, but it's only a God that you do believe in. So when somebody is struggling in nine, somebody is struggling in four, it's really not those steps that they're struggling with. It's usually two, or they, you know, it may be one and two. Always go back, go back, go back. And you have to also remember that if they want to do this, you won't be able to stop them. If they don't want to do this, there's nothing you can do. If you're a sponsor and you're listening to this, please reread Chapter 7 in the big book, and it will tell you. And, and, and the thing that I've made mistakes with in sponsoring is it's not about me. It's not about yeah. me. Right. It's not I, about me. I do me. know that. I do Thank try you. to remember that. Thank you, Thank Lois. Thank you very Thank you, much for, uh, for your response. Thank you. Thank you. No another another question, encouraging people to be very specific with their questions. Please make the most out of the time. This is Hi, this is Hello? Hi, now I got it. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Well, this is, there were two of us. This is Gloria. Gloria, Hi, go. Gloria. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Harlan. Thank you for your service. Um my name is Gloria, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. And I was—I uh, wondered if you would elaborate on a comment you made where um, people misconstrue steps three and four. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. And the second part was you did mention specific things that you don't need and not that uh, your food plan is, um, you know, of um, – uh, is something that you might want to share, but were there things that you did have to eliminate in its entirety? Yes. And that's what yes. I have to say. Thank you. Yeah, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take the now. second part really quickly first. I'll take the second part really quickly. There are foods over time that become problematic, and there are foods over time that do change. Food plans and higher powers evolve over time. Okay, steps three and four are the most misunderstood steps there are. Step three is very misunderstood because people do not understand that they're not turning anything over to God in step three. There are three frogs sitting on a log, and one of the frogs makes a decision to jump off the log. How many frogs are on the log? Three, because a mere decision will not get your rear end off the log. You have to take action. Step three is a realization that these defects of character are killing me, and now I am about to do step three, which means I am now going to do four through 12. 
So there are people running around OA saying, I turn that over in step three. I turn that over in step three. You don't turn anything over in step three. Step three is the formal terms of surrender, which says, I'm now going to pick up a pencil and a paper, and I am starting on step four. So step three is the um, agreement between me and my higher power that I am now going to do 4 through 12 every day throughout the rest of my life. Obviously, four, you, you, know, you do from time to time. But in doing step 10 and doing step 11 and doing step 12, you go through the steps on a daily basis. But the bottom line is three and four are very misunderstood. I don't need pamphlets. I don't need handouts. I don't need to buy any other books. I don't need to go and you know to other sources. Step four is extremely simple. It's a four-column resentment. Who or what am I mad at? There's nobody on this phone doesn't know who or what they're mad at. What did they do to me? Step uh, column three, what part of self is affected? That calls to the basic instincts, the social instinct, the sex instinct, and the security instinct. If you need elaboration on that, ask your sponsor. Column four, based on the defects of character, what did I do to set this resentment in motion? So it's a four-column inventory for resentments. Fear is the same kind of thing. It's a four-column inventory. Who or what do I fear? Why do I fear it? What part of self is affected? What character defects caused me to take or omit actions which brought that fear into motion? And in the sex column, or in the sex, excuse me, inventory, it's a five column inventory because they throw in one more thing. Who, or who was hurt? What did I do to them? What's the basic instinct? What defects of character caused me to take or omit those actions? And then what should I have done instead? So it's four, four, and five. Four columns for resentments, four columns for fear, five columns for the sex inventory. It's as simple as pie. Not a person on this phone doesn't know who they're mad at, what they fear, or who they've hurt in sex. There's, it's, it's very simple. And then move forward. I hope that explains it. Thank you, Harlan. And thank, thank you, Gloria. So thank you. Uh, let's, let's do... Let's, Let's do one more or two more, and then we'll, we'll call it a okay, day. Okay, Arlen, I thank you very okay. much. Okay, no next problem. up, star one to unmute. Question. Hi, this is Leah from New York. Leah, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of Leahs here. Okay. Yes. Hi. I want to thank you so much. There's so much that you clarified for me and that just put so much into my head. But I have a very practical question. I have, I'm in the same age bracket as you are, and I have a daughter who, when I look at her, I see myself at her age. And I'm doing my best when I'm in her presence, as well as any other time, to live in recovery. Um, the issue for me is that she has a little girl who just turned six, who... Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not Leah, anything. it seems like we lost you, I believe. Star one to unmute, Leah. Are you hearing me? Because all of a sudden right. I got a... Yes, Leah, right to the okay. question to make the most sense. Okay, time. so the question is what I... This, this little girl is addicted to sugar, and I have seen it since mm -hmm. she is two. As her grandmother, uh, my thing was always to bring them sugary treats. 
now I'm trying to reduce that and give them other things instead, but I'm wondering if that's correct or not or what the correct behavior towards them from me should be. There's three things you can do for your daughter and granddaughter. Write them down. They are recover, recover, and recover. You cannot control the illness in another person. You didn't cause it. You cannot control it, and you can't cure it. There is nothing you can do but recover, work the steps, recover, work the steps, and recover, work the steps. And if you've done those things, you've done everything you can do, your granddaughter and your daughter are on their path. They have a God, and it's not you. Thank you, Harlan, for clarifying that. Thank you, Leah, for the question. One more question. This is Lori in Atlanta. Lori, your turn. I am. Thank you. This is Lou. Lori, go ahead. Lori. Okay, the line keeps muting. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Um, Harlan, you're awesome. Thanks so much for getting up so early to teach us this morning. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, I have a, a question, um, and it is this, uh, pertaining to the God issue. Uh I am having a hard time. I believe in God. I know that there is a God. I know that the God is not me. Um, but And I've seen God do wonderful things in other people's lives. I mean, I've prayed for people. It has happened. I've, and I just have an issue with making God personal to me, that he cares about me, that he's going to help me. I mm-hmm. struggle, I struggle, I struggle with that. And so I would like to know how I can make him personal to me. Um and also, if you could repeat your phone number, that would be awesome. And I'm going to mute and listen. Okay. Lori, in order for me to come to a God that I do believe in, I had to suffer massive amounts of pain. In order for me to cry uncle, I have to suffer massive amounts of pain. And if I'm struggling with the development of a God of my understanding, I have to ask myself a more deep question. Do I want to recover? Or do I want to use that God that I do not believe in as an excuse to keep eating? I have to want to recover. I have to believe that there is a power greater than myself. And I recommend to anyone reading Appendix 2 at the back of the big book on page 567, which was written in response to Bill putting out in the book, uh, or God putting out in the book, Spiritual Experience, which would signify a sudden change, sudden upheaval, which is what Bill had. But for most of us, God will come to us gradually. So I recommend reading Appendix 2. The other thing, again, I want to repeat this. I have to want to recover. I have to be willing to formulate a God that I do believe in, that is personal to me, and that starts with wanting to. The next question, Lori, is my phone number is 480-495-8961. I buy my phone. I put it on silent with vibrating. I don't take it off. If you want to call me at any time, day or night, that's fine. I It will not disturb anyone. It will not... Nothing. It's fine. Um... You know, that's not a problem at all. My email address is harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, 288 at gmail.com. My email, again, is harlan, 
H-A-R-L-A-N, 288 at gmail.com. That's my email address also. Okay, Lori, I hope I answered that one. Leah, do we have one more? So we sure do, if you would like Okay. It. Okay, one All right, more. We'll take one. Press okay. star one to unmute. Hi, this is Marion. Marion, question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Harlan. Uh, what if you don't have a bottom? What What if you just manage and, and you never get to a bottom? How How do you... I, I I wouldn't know how to do that. The the program requires me to have a power greater than myself. So somewhere, Marion, if I'm unwilling to believe in God, that's going to be a stone in my shoe. That means I am still exercising self-will. If I have a God in my heart and I have a God in my head that I do not believe in, I will not recover. I will not give that God my life, which is my action, my will, which is my thinking. So I have to be willing to believe. And Marion, there is a God in your heart that you do believe in. You're confusing it with a God that you should believe in. There is something in your heart that you do believe in. It can be anything as long as it's a power greater than yourself my recommendations are that it not have skin, it can't be a person for me, and it can't be money. Nothing that is of this earth. If you look at page 60, it says, no human power could have relieved my compulsion. So it has to be, for me, a power greater than myself. Yes. Thank you Thank so you. much. Leah, one more, one more, and then I, I, I let, we're going to, yeah, we're going to stop. I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm going by you, Harlan. One okay. more question. This is Jody. Jody, go Hi, ahead. Jody. Jody, thank you. Thank you. Back to the, um, thank you so much, Harlan. Back to the question of self-care and selflessness. Um, how, I've had a hard time balancing self-care Mm-hmm. with family life. And I'm now facing a divorce in large part because of my program. Mm. And my my husband tells me that um, before I found the program, I was absent because I was in my disease. And after program, I'm absent because of my recovery program. Hmm. Sounds to me like he wants to be absent from something, but that's okay. Um, I have to take care of myself every day. Same answer, you know, basically the same thing. I, I have a God and it's not another person. I have a God and it's not a man or a woman or, or a, like that. So I have to do what I have to do to recover. Yeah. I, I don't even need to elaborate on that anymore. If I had diabetes, would somebody say to me, well, don't take your insulin, it's bothering me? I would take my insulin. If I had um, cancer, God forbid, would somebody say to me, don't take your medication? Of course I would take it. I have a fatal illness, and I treat that illness with steps and service, and I treat that illness every day. Just because someone else says it or thinks it doesn't mean it's true. I have to do what I have to do. Thank you. 
Thank you. For the question, Jody. Thank you, Harlan. Thank you very much for your time and your service this morning. Thank you for carrying a message of hope and salvation. Thank you. That a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery is possible mm-hmm. through the implementation of these steps. I'm going to close the way a vision for you closes, and that is from mm-hmm. page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.